Hey folks, this is part two of how to be a whole person and it's called use your words. So last time I made a reference to why it is so important to learn to use your words. And language processing is a left hemisphere of your brain activity, meaning uh, only your left hemisphere can talk unless you're left-handed and then it's opposite. Uh, in emotions and feelings, though, they come through your right hemisphere. So in order to be integrated, to be a whole person, you have to use your words so that both sides can come into agreement. Now, what I want to do here in this episode is go into a brief history of words, what they are, and you're going to wonder for a while, how in the world is this connected to me being a better person? But hang with me. Uh, the second half is all about why we should use our words to be more human. So here we go. Uh, the first point that I want to make is that human consciousness is evolving. Now this is a point that some people might react defensively to, but you really do know this. It's not that humans are necessarily any morally better or that we fundamentally act any differently than we did a long time ago. But the only point that I care to argue here is that our consciousness is evolving and moving in a direction. It is progressing. We have a breadth of knowledge and connection to the world that is unrivaled by any past generations, and there's a reason for that. Did you know that just in the last hundred years, the average IQ of Americans has increased by 30%? That means if you took an average adult today back to 100 years ago, they would be close to a genius level. And conversely, if you took an average person from 100 years ago out of time and brought him or her to the future to today, they would have the intellectual performance of someone with an intellectual disability. They would be classified ID and they would be in the resource class at my school. IQ seems to be increasing at a very fast rate, but it hasn't always increased at this fast of a rate. Now, some of you are Bible-believing Christians and some of you are not. Now, I want to talk to the uh, Bible believers and uh, really anyone about the Bible for just a minute. The Bible actually supports this idea that consciousness is evolving. The Bible itself begins with people in a garden, in the wild, and is itself a story that progresses. It moves forward. And just like any good story, something happens and there's a problem and the characters find themselves far from home. There's a hero that's revealed. There's a battle. The protagonist wins. The story resolves. And like with any good story, things go back to the peace that existed in the beginning. Resolution. But it's a new kind of peace and things have changed. And so it starts in a garden in the wild, and there are two trees in the garden. One is a tree of life, and the other is the tree of sort of like having a conscience, knowing the difference between good and evil. And now the Bible happens, and then at the end, you find yourself in a place where there are two trees, both of which are called the tree of life with a river flowing through them. And this time, that's not the only thing that's different. Humans aren't in the wild anymore. They are now in a city. It's really a beautiful story of the progression of humans from living in isolation in the wild to building something together. Now, how did it happen? 
uh, the human brain isn't really that much more advanced than the brain of other primates when you just look at the hardware, just at the physicality of it. But what has really been the difference maker between us and the other animals is our ability to collectively build on one another's thoughts. Now, the Bible says in Genesis that the divine creator put humans in charge of the earth, and it tells us why, because we were sort of the second-hand people of God, it says. We sort of rose to become the great ones, is my words. Now, there's this guy named Tim Urban, and he has this great description of the evolution of consciousness of humans through language. He says that if you were to take Albert Einstein and completely erase all of what he's learned by humans and reformat his brain, so to speak, just take the hardware of his brain and uh, erase all of the software that was on it. And if you were to put that guy in the middle of the woods alone with no help from no other humans, he would never in his lifetime be able to figure out how to do something as complicated as building a bow and arrow. It's just too complex for one person to ever figure out and do alone. We are where we are because we have built on the knowledge and the workings of the people in our past generations. Language is the difference between animals that are running around in the woods throwing excrement at each other and animals who are putting space probes on comets and iPhones in your pocket. Now, here's how it happened. Uh, We think language developed about 100,000 years ago. And if you go back before that and uh, looked at the pre-humans, they they learned from each other the same way that other animals did, observation. You think about how a wolf might teach its its pups to hunt. Um, You watch, you do it, you teach your kids, you die. There is a very, very, very slight rise in intelligence and knowledge with each generation learning from the one before it. It just basically comes from observation. And if you think about it, like you, you almost nothing that you know in your lifetime would get passed along to your kids that could like build on the previous generation. And so only a tiny, tiny fraction might actually uh, move forward that would increase the knowledge of the future generations. And so consciousness sort of barely moves forward. But then language. So Urban makes this cartoon where uh, one day Bob, caveman Bob, wanted this gray thing up on a hill and his friend caveman Larry was up there and he just wished that his friend could throw it to him. Uh, He didn't want to have to walk all the way up there to get it. So the next time his friend was standing by, he picked up one of these things and he had this idea and he picked up this thing and he looked at his friend and he said, rock. And Larry stared at him and he said it again, rock. And his friend, Larry, finally looks at him and says, rock. And they realize it in one moment. They start chanting, rock, rock, rock. And then the next time, Larry's up on the hill and Bob screams up to him, rock. And Larry knows what he wants. And he picks it up. And he throws the rock down the hill because they both came to a mutual realization that words could be a great way to symbolize reality, actual objects. This was the development of language. I'm sure it happened exactly like that. (laughs) Language changed everything.
If you can use words, think about how much new knowledge you can now pass down to the next generation. It's not a tiny fraction of a percent. Still a low number, maybe 5%, who knows. Uh, you can't possibly tell your kids close to everything, but you can tell them stories and you can say things like, hey, that berry gives you diarrhea, don't eat it. And you can also tell other people in the rest of your 150-person village that you're a part of. Now, now, as much as spoken words change things, eventually humans realized they could write things. And this changed everything again. Because if you can write things down, you can chisel, chisel it in stone for generations or maybe write it on uh, parchment to be transported abroad. You can make special discoveries. And you can propagate that knowledge to lots of people. You can trade knowledge with other people that you've never even met. And so that 5% or whatever number that I just made up, you, you could pass along to the next generation, that just jumped way up again because now we're not only learning from our parents, but we're learning from everyone else in the village, and now we're learning from people in other villages. And our knowledge, the amount that we know by the time that we are our parents' age, increases and increases and increases. And if you're a parent... The, every generation reaches the amount of knowledge that you have by the time you're old. They reach it at a younger and younger age. So people began to build societies. Now, in the Bible, this story is called the Tower of Babel. It's not long after the Garden of Eden, it says that humans began working together because of their common language, and they began to do something really crazy awesome together. They hit a technological breakthrough. It was bricks. Somebody discovered that instead of building a house by stacking rocks, you could just bake mud into cubes and stack them. And I don't know if you've ever tried to build a house by stacking rocks, but you can imagine about how high you could build that with. But bricks change everything. I mean, they were like the first iPhone, right? It's kind of like a different kind of breakthrough. It's not just a new technology, but with this one, you can have the foundation to build lots of things with it. So they start building a tower, and they realize they can build it as high as they want. And they get to thinking that they are going to make a name for themselves. And so it says in the Bible that the gods said to themselves, these guys are about to jack it all up with their ego and ruin this place. And so what did God do? She confused the language of the people. Because that allowed them to work together. That was what they were using the whole time. But they weren't doing it for an ultimately good way for the world. Language was what built cities. Now, if you follow history, the next huge jump was the printing press. So, like, if someone made an amazing breakthrough or wrote something brilliant or explained math or wanted to gather thousands of people for a political cause, they just printed a text thousands or millions of times over and communicated it to everywhere. So that tiny fraction of a percent that you're passing along to your kids, now... They're beginning to learn at an earlier and earlier and earlier age. And they're not just learning from people in the next village. They're learning from the experts. And then finally, the most recent breakthrough, the screen. 
anything. I don't think I need to tell you about the screen. I'll just say this, that my nine-year-old, thank you, Wild Kratz, knows more about animals than I will ever know, no matter how old I get to be. And you throw in the little tiny breakthrough called the internet that we have, and we, as a human race, have become this floating mass of a super organism. So it's called the human colossus. <laughs> now, almost every human on the planet is at some level connected to it. Almost everyone. And it seems that a person's IQ, your intelligence quotient, has come to be more or less sort of a measure of how connected you are to the human colossus. This does not mean that you have to be on Snapchat all day, praise the Lord, but rather how connected you are to that body of knowledge. You know that 30% IQ factoid that I quoted earlier? There's another one that goes like this. There are more... um, more intelligent people groups in the world and there's less intelligent people groups in the world. If you talk like average IQ over a large scale population and the most intelligent people group in the world have an IQ of about 130. And then the the least intelligent people group in the world that have been measured are tribal members who have been measured to have about a 70 IQ. They would be in the resource class with my great-grandfather, while people in the other people group would be in the gifted class with the top five percentile. I'm sure if you studied the tribes that are uncontacted, they may be even lower than that 70. But here's the amazing thing. None of us are nearly as intelligent or powerful as all of us. We've created a world where we have moved away almost entirely from self-sufficiency. It's why we like to watch TV shows about it, because we know it's not actually true for any of us. Like, you may love it or hate it, but it is invariably true. There was a guy named Matt Ridley that once famously pointed out years ago that there is not one single human on the planet who could make a computer mouse from scratch, like totally. Like, it was way too complicated for any one human to fathom. And yet, you've got a phone in your pocket that's like a million times more complicated than that, even. I remodeled a house last year and ended up doing about half of it on my own. And I had great tools and good, you know, everything's going for me. I renovated about half of that house by myself. And it was not even like a major job, but it was a pretty good reno. And man, it about broke me. I mean, like one tiny little speck on the map on a little Texas street. And this guy spent hundreds of hours, even with great tools, just to make that one little bitty house look nice. And when you do something like that, you realize how daunting the world is. And yet how amazing it is what we've created. Because words change everything like there are thousands of people right now that can they're going to work in downtown Dallas building a skyscraper and they're going to get that thing up like in short amount of time now what causes that like you might say money and that's true but words words cause people to align their goals by making agreements with one another. Because all of those people that are getting up to go to work have trusted in the words of someone else. All right, Which leads me to my next move here. Um, How do words cause people to move? Like what's the functioning mechanism beneath words? 
And that's a more personal thing that can be explained with the irrationality of emojis. <laughs> you ever thought it was a little bit counterintuitive that after all of our sophistication and the fact that we can put space probes on comets, that humans can't even type a text without putting a freaking winky face, thumbs up, heart, heart, heart in it? Like, never forget where we came from. Because remember, underneath it all, we're still animals. If you don't realize the animal nature in yourself, you're only going to be controlled by it all the more to act more like an animal. Remember the purpose of words in the first place. You remember Bob and his friend Larry and the rock that Larry threw to him? Words have always been used in the attempt to align people's goals, but they require something really important to work properly. Empathy. Words worked because of empathy. Bob's buddy Larry had to understand a need and care before he could throw Bob a rock. Words are sort of like an assurance of trust. Like we trust the person that we're dealing with isn't going to take advantage of us. They're sort of like a cosigner on a loan that allows people to take a risk. Words are. When Bob's buddy trusts Bob to, uh, that, that he wants to do something good with a rock and then not kill him with it, he can spend his energy picking it up and giving it to Bob without feeling dumb for having grabbed the wrong thing or without feeling dumb because he gave it to him and then he threw it back at him. Like, if you'll tell me that you'll be here at 6 o'clock, then I can feel good about wasting my entire afternoon cooking dinner and cleaning house because of some words that you said that created collateral for my energy in hopes that I could build our relationship or whatever it is that I wanted to build. Words are collateral. And here's the thing about humans. We are willing to do almost anything for other humans if we feel like our energy won't be wasted and the words pay off. You really need to give somebody connection and they'll be happy with you. Empathy is the basis for human connection and ultimately all social interaction in the world. Which is why it's the worst thing you can be is an accuser. An accuser, somebody who essentially doubts the motives and deep, de deep, deep down inside underneath it all doubts the humanity of another human. Like this is all over the news. It's actually what our justice system is built on. I mean like you can accidentally kill someone and if we prove without a shadow of a doubt that it was totally 100% freak accident, everybody's fine with you. But if you go to court over that, what are they going to try to prove? That you did it on purpose. They're going to try to, to figure out what you were actually thinking deep, deep down inside. Now, here's the thing about words. One thing words can never do is prove someone's motives or ultimately reveal decisively what someone was really, really thinking deep down inside. Underneath all of our accusations is the thought. 
that all of that empathy and all of what we trusted somebody else with might have been wasted. They might not have been human after all. I was watching the news in a group of people recently, and they were discussing a killing, and it was a pretty brutal thing, and you just it's just one of those things where you scratch your head. But I heard one of the people uh, in the room with me say, that guy is just scum. They ought to dot, 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 fill in the blank. Essentially, what you're saying is, that guy isn't human. Let's cut him out of the human race, because All of our empathy has been wasted on that person. Now the reason why this is really important is because it creeps into our marriages. Ever talk to a divorced person? And I've heard this over and over again. And it's like they wanted for so long to believe that their spouse was good at their core. And they finally gave up hope. They finally gave up and they just let it die because they just couldn't believe it anymore. They tried A, B, C, D, and E, and it wasn't working, wasn't working, wasn't working, and they lost faith in the humanity of that person. Really interesting is often that the testimony of two people in a relationship of some sort at the same time can also doubt the humanity of one another. When you move closer to people and you invest more and more and more and more in their lives, you will inevitably find out that they are still animals deep down inside and be disappointed. The more you use empathy, though, to bridge that gap, the more you are able to find out, if you are introspective, to find out that you're both animals sharing the same territory. And that's when grace becomes real. Grace knows the animal deep down inside and grace still says yes because I'm an animal too. So in in the scriptures if you follow the Christian story uh, the turning point of the New Testament was in a way when the church was begun. Uh, It was called the day of Pentecost and what they were saying was uh, that the anti-Tower of Babel movement could now begin. All right, These people all came together from every city under the world, and it says they were speaking different languages, but this time came when they came together, and all of these details mirror the story of the Tower of Babel, and they begin speaking one language in some miraculous way again. Because the early church held on to this way that they could start building the city, the place where humans truly will work together. If we still want to be humans, give our animal desires to control and manipulate up. Now those are going to die off the more empathy they have, but they're still always going to be there. So we have to first live by this basic premise of 100% total and complete grace for every human and every living thing on the planet. Because we are all animals and we are all prone to act like it, but we believe that with empathy we can rise above that to do greater things together for the whole planet. Now, that's a brief history of words. Okay, so what I want to do now is build on that and talk about why we should use words, okay? Words make us more human. They make us less like the savages. 
the the more that I've worked with kids with special needs, the more I've discovered that every single behavior problem that I have is a child acting more like an animal, less like a human. They're violating someone else's boundaries, and every single behavior solution we have is essentially getting two people to use their words to change that boundary violation reaction into words. So let me explain. Like, kid takes another kid's pencil. Boundary violation. Wrong action. That's what the animals do. Humans need a pencil, and they say, I need a pencil. Now, they may even have to work for a pencil because other people don't let them take advantage of them. But you use words to agree with other humans when you have an interaction. Now, kid hits another kid. (laughs) Big boundary violation. Wrong action. That's what the animals do. Humans get upset, and they tell the person why they are upset with them. And two humans, in theory, shouldn't have to revert to hitting. They should be able to use words to get along. That's why adults tend to be people who use words, and kids don't yet understand fully how to use their words. And when we are training up our children, we teach them to move from hitting and screaming and kicking and acting out and giving us ugly faces to using their words to get what they need. I went to a a training once and I got to sit in another teacher's classroom and he had class rules on a series of posters and they said this, number one, feel free to do anything you want to do as long as it does not create a problem for someone. (laughs) Number two, if you do create a problem for someone, you'll be expected to fix it and pay for it however possible. So either you will fix the problem or there will be an appropriately matching consequence. I thought, that's like brilliant little set of posters there for (laughs) rules instead of like coming up with all of these specific things, do this, don't do this, because any problem is essentially a boundary violation. Rules and laws that have, uh, every rule and law that's ever been made has been made to keep people from violating other people's boundaries. And we come up with new ones all the time, like with technology. How many new laws have there had to be since the advent of the internet and computers? So take this to... The adult level. Um, I witnessed a squabble among adults recently. They were mad because some people wanted and needed what other people had. Boundaries were being crossed. And I could hear them through the wall, not so quietly, cussing and ranting, and sometimes going down to a quiet whisper when they were specifically talking about people they were afraid might actually hear the words that they were thinking. So you might call that gossip. You might call it passive aggressiveness. But it's people who aren't using the correct words with the correct people to communicate to the specific people that should be communicated to that they have a boundary issue with. How often do we sidestep using the words that we should use with the person we should use them with? I mean, take it to your marriage. Uh, Say hubby comes home late every night and is buried in work. And wife feels really crummy about that. She feels neglected. And what's the hardest thing to do at times? Use the right words. Or the in-laws are domineering a new young marriage and it's driving you crazy, but they're a source of stability and power and maybe even money. And it's really frightening to think about what the damage might be to a relationship. And so you don't want to use the wrong words 
And so you act out in all sorts of other ways, like avoidance. Uh, or you were hurt because that person didn't invite you to that party, and so you triangulate. I think that's the word they use. And, and you, you go to a third person, and you bring them in, and you try to get them on your side by saying, you know, can you believe what they did? And you try to get them to side with you and to feel empathy with you instead of going directly to the person that you need to have the empathy of the most. And so what are you avoiding? You are avoiding using your words to get what you really wanted or needed all along. Connection with the other person. Justice, fairness, and boundaries to be set back straight again. So when you get mad and scream at somebody, you may have used words, but you are using your animal-like threatening dominance. And it was your tone of voice that took over rather than your words to express an angry, threatening, dominating posture rather than just your words, the right words spoken truly from the heart. The journey of moving from animal to human is the journey of using words rather than power moves to express your needs because, you know, when a boundary violation happens, and oh my goodness, we are a hyper-connected world of seven and a half billion people. Do you think boundary violations might be going on? Quite a bit. But when that happens, empathy is the healer. Empathy is the response that realizes we're humans together. You know, words are like an offering. I mean, you got to lay them out there and you got to say, you know, I really feel this way. And you got to trust that that person has enough empathy because that person could pounce on you. Words were originally created to be built on the hope that the other person would react positively. And we still have to offer up words today in hopes that the other person might react positively. So words are essentially kind of like a gamble. I mean, every time you speak words, you're rolling the dice, taking a bet to see what happens. You're just laying them out there in all your vulnerability, and you're leaving your hands or your heart open, and you're just waiting and depending on the other person to match you with empathy. And sometimes that doesn't happen. But is it worth it to try and to keep going? And to keep offering up words, you may be surprised. Sometimes we get hurt and we just shut off and we say, no, that's never going to happen again. I'm never going to take that chance again. And most of the time, that's not as realistic as what you think. Because I believe that empathy ultimately will win out, that love will win the day. Some of us have relationships that have unfortunately spiraled out of control in the stuffing it department. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like we have hours of dialogue stuffed that need to come out with that person. You know the person that you need to talk to. I mean, like you have years of baggage that you're carrying around because you have lived in patterns of not using your words for so long that you have case after case after case of why you've been hurt or how they've crossed you. But let me tell you this, the only way back out to a healthy relationship and not just a healthy relationship, but a healthy you is to use the right words because that's the only opportunity for empathy so what if what if we used words because 
that gave us the greatest opportunity for empathy and love and good to happen in the world. What if instead of making people dig, what if we just put ourselves out on the line when necessary and believed that the risk was worth it? That would change everything. A world like that would look a lot more like a world where people were very honest and trust flourished and empathy and love won the day. Love is essentially when you realize the humanity in someone else. When you see inside their emotions and you say, Ah, they are human just like me. You're selfish just like me. You have needs just like me. But you are also good and creative and fun and even funny just like... Well, I'm not funny. But empathy opens the door for people to work together, to start that business deal, to lend a buddy a pencil, to draw closer and closer, to peacefully cross boundaries in each other's space, and to peacefully create boundaries to keep other people that we haven't built trust with to stay back, which is what we want. Like two people fall in love when one person allows the other person to violate boundaries that they wouldn't let the other people in the world violate. Just letting somebody in your actual house, you allow somebody to violate a boundary, but in a good way. And every time we have an interaction with somebody, good or bad, you are going to have to inevitably judge their motives. Don't say you don't do this because you you don't let the pizza guy in for dinner, right? But you make them stand outside. You don't let the stranger come tickle your kids at the park. You've got to judge motives for your own safety. Now, here's the tricky thing about that. Motives are never 100% good. Have you ever tried actually listening to your own motives? <laughs> That's like the hardest thing in the world to do. And yet some of us are audacious enough to think that we can judge our spouse's motives or someone that we hardly even know. It's always easier to speak about the good motives and not speak about the bad motives. And it's always easier to trust other people have bad motives and to not trust that they have good motives. Your, co your connecting left hemisphere wants to believe a logical story about your motives while your emotional right hemisphere knows the truth. And the real truth is both of those hemispheres want good and bad things. If I kiss my wife, there's part of me that just wants to feel adored and have my needs met. You know what I mean? And then there's also this part of me that has seen her and seen the image of something divine within her. And I respond out of reverence and awe for the fact that she is a divine human being. And if you try to separate those two motives from each other, good luck. So the only way for humans to work together to build a world together is by the process of using words and trusting those who use them, and holding our boundaries with words when people violate our trust. As we close this one, I want you to think about it. Words are the path to world peace. When my kid gets all upset and is crying, I say, sweetie, use your words. Tell me 
what was wrong. When two kids at school are in a fight, I say, quit acting like animals and use your words. When my wife is upset, I say, baby, tell me what's going on. When I feel like punching my coworker, instead, I use words and listen. And when I've been holding a grudge for decades and welling up with sadness over loss, I can only get healthy again when I find words. Because words heal marriages, and words make agreements, and words hold people accountable, and words replace anger, and words construct business deals, and words create international treaties, and words seal the lifelong covenants that we make with the humans that we love the most. Two right hemispheres have never been able to solve a problem without help. I mean, think about it. Have you ever known two women to resolve a grudge just by giving each other looks? (laughs) I mean, they have created many fights with looks. Right hemispheres, not women. But they've never actually been able to solve it on their own. Have you ever just done actions and no words whatsoever and somebody goes from hating you to being like, oh, we're cool. Like the capacity to solving human problems and forging intimacy exists wholly in the left hemisphere, working in total agreement with what's going on with other people while working in agreement with what's going on with our other self. Building trust and offering empathy are happening only when words connect all of us to all of the rest of the world. So you, if you want to be a person who moves the world forward towards peace, toward intimacy, towards stronger families, toward the city that we're called to build, toward a greater work together, toward healing relationships, toward less dysfunctional politics, toward less being less like an animal and being more like a human, we are going to have to learn to use our words to become a whole person. Now, next up, emotions and how to talk about them. So today was more of why we should use our words. And the next two, I'm going to talk all about how to use our words. Next up is emotions. And I'll see you then. Love you guys.